We're now going to crack open the Bibles together. We're continuing a series called Partnership. And in this series on partnership, we've been looking at New Testament passages that talk about how the church cooperates together to be partners on mission for Jesus, uh, to be family members. Like, what does it look like for us to be brothers and sisters in Christ, to cooperate, to be members uh, one of another? Uh, And so we're trying to understand what that looks like. We still have the partnership forms in the back of the room if you want to sign up to be officially a partner with our church and to try to engage in this with us. This week, we're calling it Partners in the Message. So we're all cooperating together. We're partners in the message. We'll be in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 1, and that can be found on page 952 in the black Bibles in front of you. So you'll see some Bibles spread around. You can grab one of those, turn to page 952 to follow along. And if you don't have a Bible at home, you're welcome to keep those. We have extra boxes in the back, right? So we'll restock them. Uh, We'd love for you to have a Bible that you can read on your own. So you can keep that with you if you would like. Um, What we're going to do is the screen says verses 10 through 31. I'm going to skip part of it and just retell kind of the problem. So the problem in 1 Corinthians is division. The problem is disunity, that they are rallying around one particular leader. And they're saying, I'm on this guy's team. Uh, And then other Corinthians are saying, I'm on this other guy's team, right? And so they're breaking into factions, teams, parties, rivalries. And Paul says that behavior undermines the gospel. So 1 Corinthians is a really interesting letter because in other letters in the New Testament, Paul very clearly attacks a false teaching or a false teacher and says that guy's wrong or this teaching is wrong. But in 1 Corinthians, he's more talking about the behaviors of the church. And so in 1 Corinthians, he's saying, I know you guys love Jesus and you believe in him. That's the first part of chapter 1. But then he just goes on for the rest of the book saying, but when you do this, it confuses people about the gospel. And so what we're going to see here is that, that we're all partners together in the message, that the way we live out our life, um, again, a lot of it's issues of morality, right? But he starts off with just disunity. When we live in disunity, that undermines the message. That confuses people about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so we have to recognize that it's possible for us to believe Jesus sincerely, to, to entrust ourselves to him, and then to live in such a way that it makes it hard for people to hear that message that they're confused about who Jesus is and what he's done for us because we're living in a way that kind of takes, takes the message off course. So that's, that's the background. Um, another in- instance of something like this is in uh, Galatians 2. Uh, there in Galatians 2, Paul confronts Peter and says, Peter, you are living out of line with the gospel. Now, of course, he knows Peter knows the gospel. Peter's an apostle, right? But he has to challenge him and say, Peter, what you're doing, it was basically racism, right? He wasn't eating with certain people. He was only eating with the Jews and not the Gentiles. It says, that's not okay. That's undermining the gospel. So we have similar themes here. So we'll pick up in verse 17. We'll pick up in verse 17. We'll say, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, for, uh, but for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the sage? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. 
But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. Um, Providentially, we're coming up on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Some of you may be aware of that, church history buffs. So 500 years ago, this uh, Tuesday, right, a couple days, 500 years ago, Martin Luther is uh, famed for nailing his 95 theses on the the wall of the church door. Basically, what he was doing was he was putting up um, arguments against the corruption of the church at that time. So just like Paul was challenging Peter in Galatians and saying, your behavior is undermining the gospel, Martin Luther, in a similar way, challenged the leadership of the church at the time and said, what you're doing is undermining the message of the gospel. And so we want to pay attention to the directions that Paul gives us here in 1 Corinthians 1, because he's going to tell us how can we as, as a body, like how can we as a community partner together to be clear about the message, to be clear about this good news, this gospel good news of Jesus for us. So let me pray for us, and then we'll uh, look at it in more depth. God, thank you for this message. We thank you for the truth of Jesus. Um, we recognize, Lord, that we have hearts that wander from this, and that we often do things that undermine the message, so we pray that you would set us right, that you would put us back on course and help us to, to be clear about it. Um, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our, our minds, our hearts to receive who you are and what you've said to us, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing that we see as we're kind of moving through this, this uh, partnering in the message, protecting the message, is the differentiation between the message and the method. So as we look at verse 17, 18, and 19, I'm going to say the message is not the methods. And I just also want to kind of apologize to my wife who teaches grammar. I recognize that that's singular and plural, and that's like not right somehow in in the grammar world. But it was just really important for me to say it this way, right? Because we got one message. It's just one message. But there's all kinds of methods. There's all kinds of different ways that we might deliver that message. And we, as followers of Jesus, have to constantly differentiate the two things. We have to say, okay, this is the message of who Jesus is, and then this is how I say it, right? We're saying it in certain circumstances. We're saying it at 1045 on a Sunday morning in an air-conditioned building in a certain city, in a certain language. Um, I'm speaking to you in a certain style. I'm using a microphone. Uh, I've got PowerPoint slides. There's all these circumstances that we would say, those are not the message, right? That's just how we've chosen to speak about it. And we choose those things on purpose, thinking that it'll actually help you. For some of you, it's a distraction, right? Some of you are like, man, I wish I was outside. It's so pretty, right? Sorry, we're inside in the building. We'll get outside in a minute. But we choose methods because we think it can eliminate distractions and help us to see the message. Sometimes, though, those of us that are followers of Christ, we don't think about it at all. And we just do what the people before us did. And when we keep doing traditions without really understanding the purpose of them, sometimes we can distract from the message itself. There's an old story of a lady who would always cook a roast, and she'd always cut the end off of the roast, put it in the pan, 
uh, roast it, I guess, you know, do whatever you do with the roast then. And the daughter was asking the mom, like, why do you always cut, you know, why do you do it that way? Why do you always cut the end off? And she's like, well, that's, that's what my mom did. She always cut the end off the roast. And so then the daughter asked grandma, hey, hey, grandma, I'm trying to learn how to do the roast. And I see how mom does it. She couldn't explain why we cut the end off. Why do we cut the end off the roast? And grandma started laughing and said, well, because my pan was always too short for the roast. <laughs> right? But her daughter just kept doing that because she just was keeping the tradition, right? And she was missing the heart of the point of cooking the roast. She was just doing a thing that people did, and she didn't know why she was doing it. We do that in church a lot. There are traditions where we say, this is how church has to be done because that's how I was raised. Or this is how church has to be done because of my culture, right? Maybe what seems wise in my culture, what seems wise to my background. And then it narrows and narrows how we do things, and we start to confuse the message and the methods of delivering it. I put up an illustration here of PowerPoint itself, right? Welcome to PowerPoint. I'm using PowerPoint right now to communicate with you, right? I try hard to not really lean on PowerPoint too much. I just kind of use it because it's the culture we're in. It's the 21st century. I think it helps a little bit. Um, It helps wake you up. You look at something up on the screen. You know you're starting to fall asleep. You look and it wakes you up a little bit. Um, But try not to, to lean on it too much. But it would be crazy, and it's probably obvious to you, if I would ever say, hey, man, you can't communicate the gospel without using PowerPoint slides, right? Like, wouldn't that just be the stupidest thing in the world? And that's obvious, and you can all see that, right? But it's harder for you to see that with your own cherished traditions, right? There are things that are just, that's the way you were raised, that's the way you see the world, and so it it becomes harder and harder the closer it gets to what you love and what you prefer. It gets harder and harder to see where you're mixing up your preferences of how you want to do things with the message itself. So what I would say, amen, thank you. What I would say is that, is that we have to do the hard work every day of separating these out. We just have to keep pulling them apart, right? Now, the other side of this is when we understand that the message is not the methods, that doesn't mean that we're able to somehow communicate the message uh, neutrally apart from any cultural style, preference, or method, right? We, we all have a culture, and it's okay It's not like God hates you because you do something in your cultural style. That's okay to have a cultural style. It's okay to have a method. We just have to be aware of always separating those things out and isolating, like, this is the gospel. What is the gospel itself? So let me read the text again, and we'll talk a little more about what is that message. How do we isolate that message itself? So in the text in verse 17, he he separates a couple of things out from the gospel. Verse 17, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So baptism is sometimes called an, a synecdoche, which is a fancy word for, for one thing that stands in for a bigger thing, right? So like if I say, hey, I want to talk to all you guys with wedding rings on, what I'm saying is I want to talk to all you guys who are married. Some of you are married, some of you are not, and I'll say wedding ring is a synecdoche, a stand-in for that. Baptism serves that function in the New Testament. It is closely bound up with being a Christian. It's the way we display being a Christian. It's the way we show that to people. But Paul here is separating it and saying, it's not the same thing. It's a stand-in for salvation. It's a symbol of salvation. It's expression of your faith, even, Peter would say, right? Peter says, the baptism that saves you, it's not the washing of water. It's a pledge of a good conscience towards God, right? So Peter separates that out, and here Paul's separating it out too, saying, these things we do as Christians are not the message itself. We're doing them as an expression of our faith, our allegiance to the message. When we take communion, we're saying, I'm displaying in my heart and my actions that I trust in Jesus. But the message itself is that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that he didn't stay dead. 
But he rose from the grave, proving that he has power over sin and death, proving that you can have resurrection life by faith, by trust in him. So that's the message, and that's a separate thing from all these other circumstances and methods and things that we do. And we have to continually do the hard work of separating that out. Paul here separates that out. Um, It's interesting, previously he goes on this rant of like, I didn't really baptize many people, I just baptized this guy, and then, oh yeah, I think I baptized this other guy, I'm not even sure. Like, he doesn't even remember who he baptized and who he didn't, but he's saying it's, it's a separate thing from preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel is its own thing. And then he gives another separation in verse 17. He says, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So not with words of eloquent wisdom. It's translated probably differently in every translation because it's a tricky phrase in the Greek. It's basically just words of wisdom in Greek, but what we don't get as modern people is all the cultural freight that that carried in the first century. Because in the first century, it was much more an oral spoken culture. It was less of a written culture. And so they, like all of their university schooling revolved around speaking persuasively. They were obsessed with it in the Greek and the Roman world. They wrote books and books on how to persuade people and how to speak with wisdom. And what that meant often was techniques. It didn't mean wisdom in the biblical sense of we need to be wise and fear the Lord. It meant clever techniques to persuade right? So now one question is, does that mean that Paul hated all techniques, right? That can get confusing because we'll we'll go on and read this. He says in verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written in verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So Paul is saying there's this sense in which the gospel is always undermining the strength of our culture, right? It's always undermining the persuasiveness, the gifts, the strength of your flesh, what you're awesome at. The gospel's always saying, what you're awesome at is not enough to save you. That can't save you. You need to trust in Jesus. And so Paul is saying, as a speaker, I must not depend on the eloquence of my words, but the gospel message itself. So the question is, does Paul hate clear communication and persuasive speech? Well, no, he's just differentiating from the manipulation of the day, right? And that's kind of an intuitive line. I think it's hard for us to tell. I think that's often a heart and faith issue. I have to pray, Lord, help me to communicate in such a way that I'm not showing off my own ability, right? Or help me to communicate in such a way that I'm not manipulating people to believe something they don't actually believe. We have to be really careful about this with children. Uh, We do these backyard Bible clubs in the summer, And we're always trying to teach the teenagers that lead the clubs how to present the gospel in such a way that they're not manipulating the the kids to respond, right? Because kids are easy to manipulate. No offense, kids that are here. But, right, we can pressure kids into doing something, and they're like, okay, I I mean, I don't want to burn in hell. Sure, I'm I'm with Jesus, right? And we we can kind of just herd them towards Jesus when they're not actually really fully entrusting themselves to him. So we have to... We see that with kids, but that can happen with adults as well, right? A great speaker can make you cry or make you laugh or impress you or be flashy with his words, and then you're like, okay, well, I'm following that speaker. Again, the problem that he talked about in verses 10 through 17 was the Corinthians were saying, I follow Paul. I follow Peter. I follow Apollos. And then the guy that wanted to sound really spiritual, he said, I follow Christ, right? Paul was saying, all of you are wrong because you're you're dividing up into factions. And of course, it's, it's right to follow Christ, but they were saying it in the spirit of disunity, saying it in the spirit of factions. 
So, so Paul is saying, separate the, the message from the methods. Don't divide up and follow your favorite method guy, right? Like Apollos is classically trained. I like him. Well, Paul is really deep. I like him. Well, Peter is like a down-to-earth Jew. I like that. You know, and they're, they're dividing up according to their ethnic, cultural preferences, their style preferences, saying, I like this, I like that. And he's saying, the church should always make our preferences secondary and make the message primary. And again, that's hard work because our preferences are always going to be in the mix. It's not like you just instinctively say, if I like it, I'm going to stop liking it. You know, it's not like that kind of craziness. He's just saying, do the hard work of separating out your preferences from the gospel itself. And don't, when you try to share the gospel with someone, don't try to convert them to your culture. Try to bring them to Jesus. And that's the hard work that a missionary does. And I have bad news for some of you. You're all missionaries, right? Like if you know Jesus, you're a missionary. You, not, you might not be called, amen. You might not be called to another country, but you're, you're called to communicate the gospel in an understandable way to your, your friends and to your neighbors who may not have all the same preferences and cultural likes and dislikes that you have. So do the hard work of separating those things out so you can communicate clearly in a language they understand. And that requires us to, to look at our preferences. A, a good thought experiment is to say, if I move to a new country what of my church tradition would I bring with me, right? Because church traditions are, are fine and good. They're okay. But there's a way that we can elevate our tradition. And again, I would say our preference. Tradition is just authoritative preference, right? Tradition is just like hardened preferences. There's a way we, we elevate that over the gospel message itself. So if, you, if you're moving to a new country, how would you communi- communicate the gospel in that place? How would you make it clear? Who is Jesus? What is he about? Can you, can you separate those things out? It's a helpful thought experiment. Now just think about the people you know, right? Forget the, the unnamed foreign country. Think about the people you know. How can I clearly speak the gospel, the hope I have in Jesus, to these people that I actually know that don't believe in Jesus without calling them to be like me, right? I love certain kinds of music. I love certain kinds of books. I love certain kinds of movies. I'm not trying to convert people to that. I'm trying to convince them that Jesus is for them, I'm trying to help them to see that message of the cross. And that's what uh, Paul is trying to communicate here. So simple gospel. Let's just flip over a few pages to Romans chapter 1. In your Bible, it's the, the letter right before this letter. Because we're coming up on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, I thought it would be helpful to look at this passage because this passage in Romans 1 had a big impact on Martin Luther. In Romans chapter 1, Martin Luther began to see clearly that the gospel was about what God did for us instead of about what we do for God. So this is a clarifying place where you see the the message of the good news. Gospel literally in Greek means good news. So look at Romans 1 verse 16 and 17. I'll read it to you. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel or the good news, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, that's radical, not just your tribe, right? Again, he's saying, it's not just to save people like me. They like my kind of music and live in my neighborhood. It's for everyone who believes. Faith is the thing. You've got to trust in Jesus. He clarifies here, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. He's saying, for all the nations. Verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the righteousness of God is revealed and given to us as a gift in Jesus. Uh, Martin Luther liked to talk about it as alien righteousness. So that doesn't mean uh, Martians, right? 
Alien just means outsiders, right? So it can mean space aliens. It can mean people that don't live in our country, right? It just means outsiders. And we need a righteousness that comes from outside because we can't make that righteousness in our own heart because we're broken and we, we, we don't love people like we should. We don't stand up for righteousness as we should. And so the gospel promises that we can have an outside righteousness that's given to us as a gift to be received by faith. That's the gospel. I've been encouraging you guys over the last several months to memorize what is sometimes called the Roman Road. And it's a string of verses through Romans that clarify key points of that gospel message, of that good news. And so I'm going to say them to you again. I want to see your pens moving, okay? Because if, if you haven't memorized it yet, you need to write these down and start working on it. Because this will really help clarify the facts of the gospel and who Jesus is. Romans 3.23 is a key one. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. Like, we've all done that. Again, there's no culture, there's no kind of person that's more holy or less holy in God, God's eyes. We're, we're all failures to measure up, no matter what culture you come from. And then Romans 5.8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Romans 3.23, Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8 clarifies God didn't wait for us to clean up, but he came to us by sending his son to die for our sins. And then Romans 6.23 clarifies this substitution. And it shows that there's two ways to live. You can either, either live by a wage, by like trying to earn your way, and it says the wages of sin is death. Or you can live by gift, receiving the gift. The gift of God is life, is righteousness in Christ Jesus. So Romans 6.23 compares those two ways of living and shows the exchange how Jesus is our righteousness. And then Romans 10.9 talks about trusting in that by faith. Romans 10.9 says you've got you to receive that by faith. You've got to confess that is true, believe that in your heart. And so people like to call that the Roman road. I would say learn these verses because it will help you clarify what is the message. And then when you can clarify what the message is, then you can start to separate out the preferences that you're clinging to, saying this is the only way to do it, Right? We've, we've got to do, I used to joke about pink carpet. We used to have pink carpet, right? I was like, don't go move to a new city and look for a church with pink carpet, right? That's not the essence of the gospel. It's harder, we just have boring carpet now. It's not as exciting as that pink carpet, right? But it's not the, it's not the circumstances, it's not the methods, it's not your cultural preferences. It's God is for you in Jesus. That's, that's the message. Isolate that so you can communicate it more clearly, practice communicating it with friends that don't see the world the way you do. Have conversations with them. Uh, Tim Keller always says the best way to get better at communicating the gospel is by doing it badly. So just try to talk to people about what you believe, and you'll learn along the way, right? You just you keep practicing, keep trying to isolate out that message and clarify it in a language that people can understand. The next thing that we see is that the message is beyond our solutions. And so he's going to name some of the key cultural values of that time and say that the gospel is something better than the cultural solutions of that time. So it's beyond our solutions. We'll see this in verses 20 through 25. Verse 20 starts off for his... uh, Oh, I'm still in Romans. Flip back over. 1 Corinthians. Back in 1 Corinthians 1. So verse 20 says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. So here he's 
maybe oversimplifying a little bit, but he's saying there's this general cultural thought among Jews and among Greeks. He'll talk about wisdom among Greeks, thinking that somehow clever speech and good ideas can save us, right? They were known for their universities, known for their philosophy, known for their thinking. And then he's got the Jews, and he says, they tend to think that signs of God's power or evidences of God's power, more pragmatic, that will save us, right? So power and success and what works. And he's saying these are kind of two cultural paradigms of salvation. And as we see this, think about what are the, what are the cultural paradigms I was raised with? What was I told will save me, right? Cleanliness is next to godliness. Get an education. Find a good relationship. I mean, what are, what are those things that you think this will establish a righteousness for me? This will make things okay in my life. So he goes on and he says, for the Jews, verse 22, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So there are these cultural values that we have. Um, for them, it was, it was power and wisdom. And he's saying, you can have all the power that your culture can provide, and it's not enough. But in the gospel, you have ultimate power. Power over sin and death by the resurrection of Jesus, right? And he talks about wisdom. He says, you can have all the wisdom that your culture can give you, right? You can, you can hit the top. You can have arrived when it comes to wisdom and teaching and learning. And he's saying, it's still not enough. God is so far above the strength and the wisdom of our cultures that we recognize we still fall short. Again, remember Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That includes those of you with, with lots of degrees, right? Those of you with worldly wisdom, you still fall short of the glory of God. Those of you with great power and strength, you still fall short of the glory of God. And that's what he's clarifying here. Um, I grabbed a picture here of a diploma. That's often a symbol of wisdom in our culture, right? Having a diploma, having a degree, having two degrees, having three degrees, having four degrees. I have a couple of my diplomas on the wall. And just to clarify that I don't take them too seriously, I added a couple of other degrees there. I put my 16-year-old driver's education certificate there on the wall next to him. It's like, I did that. I accomplished that, right? You want to just kind of keep a little balance there. But those of us that actually have degrees we recognize, oh, I'm at the top of the ladder now and it's leaned against the wrong wall, right? Like it doesn't, it doesn't accomplish salvation and peace. It doesn't make everything okay in your life. And that's what Paul is communicating here. And again, not that these things are bad, right? It's great to be strong, great to be smart. Do, do these things. Just don't pursue them blindly saying, this is what my culture has taught me, so I'm gonna go down this road, recognize that it can't save you. And that's what he's trying to clarify here. So what are the... What are the preferences of your culture, the values of your culture, the strengths of your culture that you have been taught, this will save me, right? Is it meritocracy? Is it strength? Is it um, education? Is it deep relationships? What is it? All of those things can be great things, but they can't save you. Only Jesus can save you. And that's what, again, Paul is trying to separate out and saying, this message is beyond our cultural solutions. It's not what your culture has taught you will save you. It's this whole other thing, and it comes from God, and it comes from the outside, and you have to trust in Jesus. You can't trust in your flesh. You can't trust in your strength. You don't throw them out the window. You don't just get rid of them, right? You use your gifts to glorify God, but you don't use them thinking they'll save you. 
You use them in, in humble dependence on God, like, okay, God, what's next? What do I do with this? It's not going to solve all my problems, but I, I think this is the next thing that you've asked me to do with my life. Uh, in our own family, we've, we've had to wrestle with this, and I think this is a hard part of doing parenting, right? In parenting, you're teaching your kids to be strong. You're trying to teach them good habits, right? You're trying to educate them. You're trying to help them to succeed in life, and so you're going to give them some worldly wisdom, but you always have to be saying, but this is not enough. You've got to trust Jesus, and ultimately without Jesus, none of this is really going to get you anywhere. And so you see that in parenting, and we see that in our own life, using the gifts he's given us as gifts rather than as sources of salvation. So what is it for you? What's the cultural solution that you might be leaning on too much? What is God calling you to, to turn from so that you can trust in him? The, le- the next thing we're going to see, the last section here is verses 26 through 31. Here we'll see that the message is for the weak. The message is for the weak. I'll read verses 26 through 31. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. I'll pause here and just say, uh, Paul's getting a little insulting now, right? He's, he's trying to challenge us, and he's saying, Okay, that's great that you want to attain to these great things in your culture, but remember you were kind of a loser when Jesus found you, right? And so, I mean, I would never insult you that way, but Paul is saying it here, and he's saying you, you didn't have your stuff together, and Jesus came to you in love, and he said, yeah, you're not enough, but I love you, and I'm going to make you enough in Christ. And so remember, remember where you started off, right? Remember, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Remember that you didn't, you didn't make yourself, you didn't arrive, you haven't solved your problems, you, you needed Jesus to come in and solve you. So he's appealing to their own life. So he's saying, remember where you started. Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So we have this kind of wave here. God, God chose, God chose, God chose. That, that means that it wasn't you choosing your own salvation. It wasn't you saving yourself. It was a God who came in and said, you're lost, I will save you. And this can be tricky. We, we saw this some in Romans. You know, people get in these philosophical debates arguing between like Calvinism and Arminianism. And what I would say here is the Bible comes to you as a lost orphan. And it comes to you lost, Okay. So forget the philosophical arguments for a minute and say that the Bible is saying to you that you can't save yourself, that you're starving, that you're hurting, that you're on your own, and God came to you and he chose you in love. He loves you. Hear that message. The good news is God loves you. He's come after you. He's grabbing hold of you. That's what he's saying here. So recognize that that that, by its very nature, means You can't save yourself. You need a God who comes in and saves you. You need a God who loves you. And faith is trusting in that. It's trusting in him instead of yourself. It's saying, I'm not not trusting in my strength because God shames the strong. I'm not trusting in my wisdom because God shames the wisdom of this world. I'm not trusting in my high birth or where I come from. I'm trusting in my adoption, that he made me part of his family so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So there's this decision point this scripture takes us to. I hope you'll see 
This is kind of built into the message. You know, I joked earlier about PowerPoint not being necessary to communicate the gospel, so I'm purposefully using really cheesy 90s art for my PowerPoint today, right? Just to undermine that I'm not, I'm not putting my weight on the PowerPoint, okay? So here's this picture of strength being a crossroad sign to one side, weakness to the other. What we do as a church, when we gather together, we're calling on you to make a choice, right? When you're coming to this message to hear it, you're saying, am I going to go the way of thinking I'm strong enough to do it on my own? Or am I going to go the way of saying, no, I'm weak, I have to trust in God? You're at a crossroads. And that's really what we try to do every week is, is call ourselves to that crossroads. Some of us have already made that decision to trust in Jesus, and we've started to try, follow, to try to start following him. And we kind of drift to thinking, no, I, I can do this. Get out of the way, Jesus. I don't, I don't need you. I can do this. I'm strong enough. And so every week as we worship together, we're kind of calling each other back to that crossroads, saying, no, we gotta, I got to go this way, the way of weakness, recognizing that God loves those who are weak. He gives grace to those who are weak. So this message is a message for the weak. And what does that mean? That means none of us are strong enough on our own. Again, that doesn't mean we don't want you to be morally strong. Paul's going to spend the rest of 1 Corinthians say, saying, yeah, be strong. Stop doing this immorality, right? He's, he's calling us to a type of moral strength. He's just saying the only way to get there is recognizing that you're morally bankrupt to start with. And so then once you recognize you can't do it on your own and you receive what Jesus has done for you, that gives you the strength to then begin following him then to begin knowing that with his strength and with his help, I can begin to do what's right. So we want to be strong. We want to do what's right, but we're doing it because he gave us his power through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So everything we do in life is a response to what Jesus did for us, not a way for us to get God to love us, not to say, God, look how strong I am. Won't you, won't you bless me now? Look at what I've achieved. Won't you bless me now, God? And that's what I want to call on you to, to give up and say, no, I can't. I can't trick him into blessing me by all my achievements. I have to come with open hands of faith and say, God, I need your grace. That's the ultimate blessing that he's given us in Christ. In our culture, we struggle with this because, man, especially in the military, if you're a business owner, like you want to reward strength and you want to get rid of weakness in your operation, right? You want your operation to be successful. So there's some of those things that are really good and right, right? Like you want to you get stronger. You want to build this strength. And so how that actually works out in our day-to-day life can be really tricky. And I don't, I don't really begin to understand fully what that will look like for you if you're a commander or if you're a business owner. Like what does it look like for you to commend strength and encourage productivity wherever you are, but at the same time to recognize, you know, by faith I recognize that I'm, I'm not productive. I'm not strong, and God loved me anyway. How do we live with grace while also trying to build some kind of system of meritocracy where you're encouraging productivity and strength and health? I don't even know. Thankfully, I'm a pastor. You're the ones that are commanders and business owners, right? You have to go figure that out. I think the scripture has some wisdom for us. So I think one thing that's really helpful to study is in the Old Testament, there are two key words used for justice, right? And in our political climate, we often kind of swing from one side to the other. There's the abstract word sadak, which is basically a word for justice and righteousness. So that's the kind of like moral perfection that we want to achieve. And again and again, the Bible says that we are called to a standard. And we have to say, amen, the Bible approves of that. And then there's this other word for justice, it's mishpat. 
And that other Hebrew word for mishpat is often the word that's in context of, you know what, you need to make sure that the orphan and the widow and the outsider and the foreigner, that they're being considered, that they get their justice, or sometimes the word is translated rights. And so the Bible mashes those together. It says we're not going to just have this system of absolute perfection. We're not just going to have this system of, of you know, equal mercy distribution to say it in political words, right? It's not really Marxism. It's not really libertarianism. It's neither one of those systems. The Bible is mashing these things together and say, yeah, we should hold each other to a perfect standard of righteousness. And then you know what? None of us met it. God met it for us in Jesus. So we need to have that same kind of merciful eye towards those around us. And so we need to recognize that, that God